It's common today to find people who question who Jesus is, why he came, and what it even means to follow him. There are people even today that question whether or not Jesus was even a real man. Now, it's a minority, but still they wonder. They think that Jesus is some mythical figure, that he's a a made-up person, kind of like Hercules. He's not even real. Now, again, they're, they're the minority, but most people would say, yeah, Jesus, Jesus was a man. He lived in history, but he was just a man. He was a, a moral teacher. He was a wise sage. Maybe even he was a prophet, but he was just a man who lived a life, set a good example, unfortunately stepped on the wrong toes, and it got him killed. But that was never his intention. They might say that that he's all these things, a teacher, an example, all of that, but he's not the King of Kings. He's not the Lord of Lords. He's not the Son of God who gave his life on the cross for sin. Now they would say that, that maybe he was a Savior in the sense that he set a moral example of charity and love and sacrifice that we ought to emulate, but and we can learn from that, but his death on the cross never atoned for anyone's sin that his death never covered our rebellion against God. But is that the case? Was Jesus simply a moral teacher? Was his crucifixion the result of Jesus sort of losing control of the situation and he died a death that he never intended to die? Maybe you won't go that far this morning. But maybe you have questioned or doubted from time to time Why did Jesus have to die? Why did he have to give his life? Where is the wisdom and the purpose of God in the death of Christ? If this is your first time with us this morning, I just want to say welcome. We're glad that you're here. You've walked into a rather long series. I've been preaching through the Gospel of Mark for almost two years now. Uh, I haven't been preaching every week, but when I do, that's what I do. I just work through little by little through the Gospel of Mark. Mark is an historical account from an eyewitness of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's a man who was there, who heard, and he wrote down the testimony of the apostles regarding Jesus' life. Mark wants to give us a news report of some of the major events that happened in the life and ministry of Christ so that we might learn about him. He wants to show us not just tell us, but show us who Jesus is, why he came, and what it means to follow him. This morning, as we look at Mark 14, verses 12 through 21, which is page 850 and 851 in the Bibles in the chairs, Mark is going to report to us that Jesus' impending death was no accident. It was intended. It was purposed. It was all going according to plan. Jesus knows that his betrayal and his condemnation, his beating, and his death are imminent. And Jesus willingly and deliberately prepares himself for it. Friends, we believe that nothing happens apart from God's wisdom, apart from God's plan, apart from God's sovereign and divine governance over all things. Not creation, not the unfolding of history, not the death of his son, and not the 
end of the world as we know it. Everything happens throughout space and time, happens according to God's wise and sovereign plan. And we're going to see that this morning. Over the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at this celebration of Passover that Jesus shares with his disciples. And this first week, we're going to focus on the fact that everything that happens, happens according to plan. We're going to focus on what happens and how that's according to God's plan. And then next week, as we look at verses 22 through 26, we're going to answer the question, why? Why does it happen according to God's plan? So this week, what happens according to God's plan? Next week, why does it happen according to God's plan? But I want to be absolutely clear. Everything, absolutely everything happens. It goes. It transpires exactly according to plan. The preparation of the Passover happens according to plan. The celebration of the Passover happens according to plan. And Jesus' imminent betrayal happens according to plan. So let's see it. I don't just want you to hear it from me. I want you to see it in the text. So let's look at Mark 14, verses 12 through 21. Again, it's page 850, 851 in the Bibles and the chairs. It says, On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went into the city, and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and to ask him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It's one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. There are three ways that we will see God's plan unfolding in this passage. And the first is found in verses 12 through 16. The preparation for the Passover happens according to plan. Like a good news reporter, Mark tells us when this happens. He says right there in verse 12, And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. This is Thursday. And depending upon the time of day that that the disciples approached Jesus about the Passover arrangements, Jesus would be dead in less than 36 hours. Where would you be? What would you be doing if you had less than two days to live? probably spending time with family, right? Being prepared spiritually to meet your Father in heaven. You know, Jesus is doing the exact same thing. Now, his, his biological family might not have been there, perhaps with the exception of his mother. His spiritual family was. And Jesus prepared for his death by celebrating 
a religious festival that for over a millennium had pointed to his death. Jesus' death was no surprise to him. Jesus wasn't caught unexpectedly. He had made predictions time and time again. We've seen some of the explicit and the implicit predictions as we've gone through Mark. But there are three in particular where Jesus tells us clearly that he is going to die. The first one occurs in chapter 8, verse 31. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He said this when he was in Caesarea Philippi in the middle of his ministry, the furthest point that he was from Jerusalem itself. He was there and immediately after he said that, Jesus was transfigured upon a mountain, giving Peter, James, and John just a a picture, a glimpse of his true heavenly glory. And from that point on, as he revealed his true nature of who he truly is, he then begins to set his face towards Jerusalem, towards this end. He begins to make his way south on the road to Jerusalem, on the road to the cross. And it continues on in chapter 9, verse 31, as they pass through Galilee. Again, Jesus tells them that he is going to be delivered over into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. And he continued further south, entering the region of Judea. This is where Jerusalem is located, kind of like the state that the city is in. And he he says there in chapter 10, verse 32, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And again, taking the twelve, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. Saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him, and after three days, he will rise. And just a few verses later, as we got to chapter 11, we see Jesus' journey coming to an end. He enters Jerusalem. His journey is finally complete. He landed in Jerusalem on Sunday. It's now Thursday. Jesus dies on Friday. Now, I say all this because I want it to be abundantly clear to you. Jesus knew that he was going to die. That was his purpose for going to Jerusalem, not just to celebrate the Passover. Jesus went to go to the cross. He knew what this meant, and he was willing to embrace it. All of this happened according to plan. And so the plan continues. Even as his disciples asked Jesus, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Let's look again at verse 13. And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city, that is Jerusalem, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, now that's a different man than the one carrying the jar, Say to him, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. 
And the disciples set out, and they went into the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Friends, look at all of the details that Jesus gives his disciples. He tells them the number who are to go. He tells them where they are to go. He tells them what they are to look for. He tells them how to identify the man that they are to follow. He tells them who that man is going to connect them with. And then he tells them what to say to that man. And then he tells them what that man will do in a response. He tells them what this room will look like, how it will be prepared. And then he tells them what they are to do as a result. Guys, that is a ton of detail. All right? That's a ton. It's absolutely a ton. If you go to a fortune teller or a palm reader, you will not get that much information. If you go and eat Chinese food and you open up the fortune cookie, it's not going to be that long. It's not going to tell you. If you go to a seance, which I'm not recommending any of this stuff, by the way, all right? But if you go to a seance, they are not going to give you this much detail. But Jesus gives a ton of detail here. In fact, he gives so much detail that a lot of people say, well, Jesus clearly had to make arrangements ahead of time, right? They just watch too many James Bond movies, right? It's like super spy sort of covert operations. You've got like this secret exchange happening between people and and code words like the teacher, you know, and secret layers that you kind of go and, and, and have your little celebration in, right? I mean, but that is possible, okay? That, that is a possibility that Jesus made all of these arrangements ahead of time that he didn't bother telling his closest friends about. You know, those, those guys who were always with Jesus 24-7, who lived life with him, who were basically listening into every conversation that he ever had, right, who were always there, the kind of guys that, that Jesus, when he needed to make arrangements about stuff, he'd say, hey, will you go and do this for me, right? But, but maybe no, maybe, maybe it was like a surprise birthday party, you know, and he just didn't want his disciples to know about it, Right? Or maybe Jesus was just a micromanager, right? He just couldn't give up control of all the details. And it, it had to go just so, according to plan. And, and I, I, I can't trust this kind of information to my disciples because, guys, you've seen, they're pretty dull. They're pretty hard-hearted. You, you get my sarcasm, right? I, I'm, I'm, I'm being obvious, right? If you don't know me very well, I'm being sarcastic, okay? Let you in on that. Now... Meeting a man carrying a jar of water, I mean, that doesn't sound like much, but that would not happen in this culture. I'm sorry, ladies, but in this culture, in this state, that was woman's work, okay? It was. I mean, a man doing that would stick out like a sore thumb. Now, I I tried to think about, okay, what would this be like in our culture, in our egalitarian embrace everything, you've kind of seen everything in our culture, what would this look like? And and maybe this is over the top, but this is the best that I can come up with. It would be like going and finding a man wearing high heels and a Justin Bieber dress, carrying a Gucci bag while holding a Hello Kitty umbrella. It's as good as I got. But I know what you guys are thinking, right? I just saw that guy on Green Street. (laughs) I did. Uh, Yeah, I just don't think that this was that covert. Okay? I don't. 
No, I, I do not understand this to be a pre-arranged meeting, but divine foreknowledge, okay? Jesus tells us what will happen so that when it does, we might believe. He's done that so many times before, all right? That's ultimately why I think that, because in chapters 8 through 14, Jesus makes 14 predictions regarding future events, not counting this one. 14 future events. I mean, we've already seen that Jesus has predicted his arrest, condemnation, beating, death, and resurrection three times in chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. He predicted his transfiguration and how Peter, James, and John would see the kingdom of God coming in power in chapter 9, verse 1, and then six days later, it happened. This event is parallel in many ways to Jesus' prediction about two of his disciples finding the colt of a donkey for him to ride into Jerusalem on. That was chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. And that wasn't a prearranged meeting because he says, hey, you're going to go, you're going to find this, and if anybody happens to ask you, tell them this, and they'll let you come. And so they go, and they find this donkey, and they get ready to take it, and there's people like, hey, hey, what are you doing? I mean, this is not prearranged. This was not expected. But it continues. I mean, he predicted the condemnation of the scribes in chapter 12, verses 38 through 40, the destruction of the temple in chapter 13, the bur- his burial and the remembrance of this woman who anointed him in chapter 14, verses 3 through 9. In this passage, in verses 18 through 21, he predicts his betrayal and the betrayer's judgment. He predicts that he would not drink the cup again until that day where he drinks it anew in the kingdom of God. In verse 25, this is the only one that hasn't yet been fulfilled. In verse 27, he tells us that his disciples, that when he is struck, they will all scatter, and they do. He says in verse 28 that he will meet them after he is raised in Galilee. That's verse 28. And in verse 30, he predicts that Peter will deny him three times. All of those were fulfilled by the end of chapter 14. Even when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and they're sleeping and he has to wake them up, he says, hey, get up, my betrayer is coming. In verse 42, and there it is, right there. It's eight individual predictions of future events in chapter 14 alone. But nah, Jesus Jesus doesn't know what's going to happen. This this surely has to be a prearranged meeting, right? There's just too much detail here. Jesus knew all of this other stuff, but surely he had to work out these preparations ahead of time. I, I don't think that that's Mark's point at all. Mark's point is clearly he wants us to understand that Jesus knows what will happen, and it goes according to plan. Whereas he says in verse 16, And the disciples set out, and they went to the city, and they found it, just as he had told them. And there they prepared the Passover. But friends, even if Jesus did make these arrangements ahead of time, which I don't think for a second, but he still knows what is going to happen, And he's still willing to embrace it. He's still willing to accept his lot and what God has for him. But Mark wants us to see that Jesus is more than simply a micromanager. He's more than just a guy that has plans. He knows what will happen, not because he's a man who makes arrangements, but because he is the son of God who does all things according to the counsel of his will. 
Jesus is not some moral teacher who happened to step on the wrong toes and died a very unexpected, mistaken death. The cross was no accident. It happened just according to plan, just like these preparations. And don't let anyone tell you different. I don't know what your struggles are with Jesus at this point, but I can assure you this is no accident. Jesus knows who he is, why he came, and he's showing us what it means to follow him. So we see that these preparations happened according to plan. But second, the celebration of the Passover itself happened just as God intended. Now, so far I've told you, all I've told you about the Passover is that it's a celebration. But it's more than that. The Passover is an ancient celebration. For over 3,000 years, actually closer to 3,500 years, since the time of Moses and the Israelites' captivity in Egypt up until now, Jews have celebrated this annual this annual meal in order to commemorate and remember one of the most defining moments in all of their history. God's deliverance of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. If you're a Jew, it doesn't get bigger than this. You can read all about this if you're curious in the second book of the Bible. It's called Exodus. That's what it's all about. I encourage you to, to look at it. You see, more than a thousand years before Christ, the Israelites, God's people, were slaves to a great nation, the greatest nation on the earth at the time, Egypt. They were suffering under bondage. But after 400 years of, of being in slavery, God sends a very unlikely man to do a very unlikely thing. Moses became a deliverer of the slaves of the Israelites from the superpower Egypt. And God does it in ways that no one would expect. He does it by sending a series of plagues upon Egypt. The final plague was the angel of death. God's divine justice would, would pass over the land of Egypt and every firstborn male would die. Every firstborn male. Every animal, every Egyptian, and every Israelite. See, God is a holy God, can have nothing to do with sin. The Israelites, just like the Egyptians, are sinners. And so they, too, were going to be subject to God's divine justice, even though God could have wiped them all out, only chose the firstborn male. And the only hope that the Israelites had to escape this judgment was by placing their faith in God's provision of a substitute. In this case the sacrifice of an unblemished lamb. The lamb was sacrificed for the family. Its blood was spread on the doorpost. And the only hope they had to be delivered from death, to be saved, was to place their faith in the blood of the lamb. That was the only thing that set them apart. The only thing that made them unique. The only thing that kept them safe. God's justice came, the angel of death, and in faith, one must take shelter under this substitute sacrifice, under the blood of the Lamb. If you did, God's judgment, death would pass over you, and you would be saved. If you didn't, your child would die. That was it. Those were the options. 
And that's why they call it Passover. That God's judgment would pass over you if you had faith in the blood of the Lamb. This is how God delivered Israel from slavery. And since that time, God had commanded that they commemorate this deliverance by celebrating this feast, Passover. This annual event has continued in the lives of Jews virtually unchanged for over 3,000 years. We think about that. We think we have traditions. Think about that. Now, God gave the Israelites laws regarding how the Passover was to be prepared and celebrated. Right? He was very detailed. The, the Passover had to be prepared in a particular way. The celebration that they, they did each year was scripted. They had to follow an order. And God was clear as to what was to be eaten, how it was to be cooked, what was to be said, and what was to be reflected on during this annual celebration. All of it had to happen exactly according to God's plan, exactly according to God's script. Now, I'm not a Jew. I've never been to a Passover. I don't recommend it for those who are trusting in Christ. There's no need, right? But as I've studied the Passover, this is a little bit of of what I understand this celebration to look like. And I want you to get this because it's going to be key in understanding where Jesus deviates from script. Okay? First of all, the Passover was a family celebration. You did it with your family, your biological family. Right? It took place at night to symbolize the night watch from Exodus 12:42. Typically at this time, Jews ate two meals, late afternoon or late morning and late afternoon. To have a dinner in the evening was was significant because they were they were reminding themselves of keeping watch for the angel of death passing over. The elder of the family would preside over the ceremony, and this ceremony was centered around four cups. Four cups that represented God's four promises from Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. That he would rescue them from Egypt, they would be freed from slavery, that he would redeem them by his power, and that they would have a renewed relationship with God. These are the four promises that each of those cups signified. The ceremony began with the family head pronouncing a blessing over the festival and the wine, which apparently they reserved for special occasions only. And then the family would drink that first cup. And after they drank the first cup, they brought in the foods, the very particular foods that God wanted at the table. There was unleavened bread, there were bitter herbs, there were greens, there was stewed fruit, and there was the roasted lamb. After all of that was laid out just so on the table, they went ahead and they retold the story of God's deliverance from Egypt. They retold that biblical account. And then after that, they would sing Psalm 113 through 115 that made a hymn. This would introduce the second cup. It was blessed. The family passed it around. And then the head would stand up and he would pronounce a scripted blessing on the unleavened bread, which he broke and he would hand silently. He would go and he would hand to each person himself. Silently, he would give them to them. They would then take that bread, which represented the bread of their affliction that their fathers ate in the wilderness, and they would dip it into the bitter herbs, which represented the bitterness of slavery, and they would eat it. They would eat the stewed fruit that looked like red clay to remind them of the clay, the brick clay, the clay bricks that they were forced to make while they were in in Egypt. 
Then they discussed the blessing of freedom from slavery, and it was only after that point that they were able to eat the roasted lamb. It all happened in this order. After the meal was eaten, the head blessed the third cup, which represented God's divine power to redeem his people. After that, he prayed a prayer of thanksgiving, and then they would sing Psalm 116 through 118. After singing, the fourth cup was then given to represent God's restored relationship with his people. He said, I I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And after this blessing was said, that would conclude their ceremony. Now I mention all of that detail. Because for thousands of years, this celebration had gone on exactly according to that script, that plan, that liturgy. It wasn't deviated from that. Not from the time of Moses to the time of Jesus, and not from the time of Jesus to present. For over 3,000 years, that is the way the Passover ceremony happened. That's the way it was celebrated every year. Israelites grew up following these careful instructions laid out by God. Every Israelite, except for Jesus. I don't know if you noticed it or not, but it doesn't appear that Jesus carried out this Passover according to plan. I mean, first of all, Passover is a family celebration, but where is Jesus' family? Where's Peter's family? Where's John's family? They're not there. Unless, of course, Jesus is redefining the family, which I think he is. Take this passage, which tells us that only the twelve were there. Matthew agrees it was only the twelve. Luke says that the apostles, which were the twelve, were the only ones present. You take that and you combine that with Mark chapter 3, verses 34 through 35, and it shows us that Jesus is redefining what it even means to be a family. It's not about bloodlines. It's not about being of the tribe of Abraham, but it's about being a spiritual family, about following Christ. He says, who are my mother, my sisters, and my brother, but those who do the will of God? This is no longer a celebration for Abraham's family line, but for those who follow Jesus. And did you notice that Jesus breaks away from script? Instead of silently distributing the bread and reflecting upon God's freedom from slavery, Jesus says to them, one of you will betray me. He says, take, this is my body. He has that third cup. Instead of presenting script, he says, remember that cup which, which represents God's divine power to redeem. That's what that cup represented. He says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Jesus doesn't even finish the ceremony. They sing the song that takes place between the third and the fourth cup, but there's no fourth cup. There's no cup there that represents this restored relationship to God, this ultimate consummation. I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll deal with that next week. But it doesn't even finish it. (laughs) So how could Jesus, this carpenter from Nazareth, deviate from such a long-standing tradition? 
How could a mere rabbi, no matter how popular, no matter how moral, dare to go against God's purposes and God's design for this ceremony? This is blasphemous. This is irreverent. How dare he do that? This is not according to plan. Or is it? And then there's the issue of the Passover lamb. <laughs> Where's the lamb? We, we see in verse 12 that it mentions that this is the day that the, the Passover lamb was to be sacrificed. And Mark is very deliberate to tell us that they prepared for the Passover. He's, prepare is mentioned three times in verses 12 through 16. He's careful to point out the room. He's careful to point out the furnishings. He's careful to point out the meal. But no sacrifice. And no preparation of the lamb. Now surely there was a lamb there. You know, as bad as we think that it would be to have a Thanksgiving and no turkey, right? To have a Passover without a Passover lamb is a sin, right? It just goes against the, the, the complete purpose of God. So how could this be according to plan? Unless, of course, Mark intentionally left it off because the lamb was already at the table. The one to whom the whole ceremony pointed to all along was there. John 1, 9. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming towards him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 1 Peter Chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Know that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7 says, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Or Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. The ultimate culmination that all of this is meant to point towards. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in hand and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And if you don't know Revelation, he's talking about Jesus. All that the Passover represented, rescue, freedom from slavery, God's divine power to redeem his people, and a restored relationship to God are fulfilled in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He did what no animal sacrifice or celebration ever could. For over a thousand years, the blood of the lambs were offered repeatedly to cover the sins of God's people, but to no avail. And people throughout history, Jews throughout history, they recognized it. Psalm 40, Psalm 50, Isaiah 1. They all point to the insufficiency of the sacrifice. 
Hebrews chapter 9 and 10 all point to the insufficiency of animal sacrifices. Now think about it. Think about it. Since the time of the sacrificial, the sacrificial system, all of the animals, all the beasts, and all the birds that were killed, millions of them, for over a thousand years, millions of animals sacrificed. Think about the sea of blood that would have been let by these animals. And all of that was insufficient to do what Christ has done on the cross. Do you not see the significance? Do you not see the value? The wisdom of God is displayed in setting up this sacrificial system so that we can see that time and time again, man cannot save himself, that there is no hope, that there is no other sufficient sacrifice besides Jesus Christ for sin. We need him. We, we require him. He does what none of us can do. And he does that on behalf of all of those who would repent of their sin and follow after him. Jesus could change the script because Jesus is the fulfillment of the script. It all points to him. Jesus is the Passover according to God's plan. And worthy is the lamb who was slain. Guys, the cross of Christ was no accident. This was no mistake. Christ intended it from the beginning. It was the fulfillment of the Passover just as God had always planned. God set this up so long ago that we might see the depth of Christ's sacrifice for sin. And so the preparation and the Passover both went according to plan. But third, so did Jesus' betrayal. Let's look at verses 17 through 20. It says, And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him, One right after another, Is it I? And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. Evening came, and Jesus and his disciples were celebrating Passover. And Mark is not concerned about helping us to see that they followed the exact order. He only is concerned about when Jesus breaks away from script because he wants to show us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover. This conversation that takes place happens between the second and the third cups. They're eating the unleavened bread that represents the bread of affliction that their fathers had ate in the wilderness, and they're dipping it into the bitter herbs which represented the bitterness of slavery. And I can't help if wondering if there was meant to be a connection here between Jesus' affliction and the bitterness of his betrayal. That question's not exactly answered. As they were eating, Jesus tells them that one of you will betray me. One of you eating with me. And just to be abundantly clear, he says it's one of the twelve, one of you who are dipping the bread into the dish with me. I mean, could you could you imagine being here? Could you imagine you're celebrating? 
the Passover. You're remembering what God did so long ago in rescuing Israel from slavery. And Jesus says, hey, one of you all, one of my closest friends, one of you is a slave to your sin, and you will betray the Passover lamb. Mark tells us that each one became very sorrowful. Each one of them said one right after the other, is it I? Is it me? Jesus, you're not talking to me, are you? It it, it can't be me. Not me. And Matthew wants us to make abundantly clear that even Judas asked the question. The reality is none of them knew who it was. Each of them wondered, could it be me? Could I betray you? Could I reject you? Could I exchange you for something less? We like the idea of making Judas into a villain. Right? We, we read these accounts and we have insider information. Right? The, the gospel writers are writing after the fact and they tell us right away who the betrayer is. So as soon as Judas shows up on the scene, they say, he's the one who's going to betray him. And so we read that and we begin to think, okay, Judas is the bad guy. And everybody can see it. Everybody knows Judas is a bad guy. He's a bad, bad man. He's a bad man. I don't know why Jesus tolerates him. He's bad. B-b-b-bad. Like, he's just, yeah, he's just crazy bad. And so we look at that and we're like, oh, I- I'm not like Judas. I am not like him. But if you were there, you would have no idea. No one knew who it was. And every one of them were grieved. And they said to themselves, is it I? Could it be me? The truth is, it could have just as easily been Peter or James or John. It just happened to be Judas. It could have just as easily been you or me. The reality is, every man, every woman, every child is capable of betraying Jesus. Everyone is that hypocritical. Everyone is that double-minded. It just happened to be Judas. And though he was the one who physically delivered Jesus over, each one of them would betray him. Every single one of them would cower in fear and hide as Jesus died alone. Every one of them abandoned him. The reality is they're all guilty. They all betrayed him. And we are no better. When we read this, we too ought to be grieved. We ought to be grieved and we ought to ask ourselves, is it I? Will I betray you, Jesus? But do not let that sorrow lead to death but may it produce in you a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Everyone is capable of betraying Jesus, and not one of them know who it is. But Jesus does. This betrayal happens according to plan. Verse 21. But the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. 
Not only does Jesus know who will betray him, but the whole thing, Jesus' betrayal, his death, his resurrection, has been both foreordained and foretold in Scripture. Jesus is probably referring to multiple passages here. It could be that he's referring to the Son of Man passages in Daniel. Or maybe Psalm 55 that was read earlier. My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. John in 13 verse 18 quotes from Psalm 41 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. And of course we can't mention this without talking about Isaiah 53, can we? That he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one for whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his stripes we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one have turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for this generation... Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. And yet, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And his soul makes an offering for sin. He shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And out of the anguish of his soul, he shall, be, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. All of this happens according to God's plan. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of Him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed, for it would have been better that that man had not been born. This is one of those passages that clearly displays God's sovereignty and human responsibility that they really do go hand in hand. The Son of Man goes as it is written of Him, but severe condemnation will fall upon the one who chooses to betray Him. And though Jesus doesn't tell us exactly how these two things work together, all of it happened according to God's sovereign plan, and Judas is responsible for his actions. The amazing thing is that Luke and John seem to indicate that Judas was there to hear these words of condemnation. He heard it. And yet later he left and betrayed Jesus anyway. He willingly received his judgment. 
know, it was too late for him, but it's not too late for us. Acts chapter 3, verses 17 through 21 says, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God has spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets so long ago. Friends, Jesus' death was no accident. He is not just a man. Everything from the location of this celebration to the very meaning of Passover itself, both Jesus' betrayal as well as his death and resurrection went exactly according to God's pre-established and pre-recorded plan. And it is told to, to you today so that you might respond so that you might repent of your sin and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that He may send the Christ appointed for you. All of that was necessary. All of it was necessary for us to see how much we need Jesus so that we would respond by loving Him. And guys, I pray that for you this morning. Now is your opportunity to return, to repent, to be restored to God. Let's pray together. Father God, I, I pray that this morning we would see what a comfort and what a blessing, just how amazing it is that you really do work all things according to your plan. That plan doesn't just mean blessing and prosperity as we like to think it, though ultimately it does, that you have included even the betrayal of Jesus into your plan so that your people, those whom you have called to love you, might receive the gift of life. God, I pray that we marvel over your wisdom, your goodness, and your purposes in Christ. Pray that they may never grow old. Pray that we would see just how significant and amazing that sacrifice is. We would realize just how much we need it. That we would respond not by hating Christ and going out to betray him anyway, but would instead turn to repent to follow. God, we thank you for Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.